and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardhan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, We Beg to Differ, The Buddhists and Jains. We have now seen how a variety of different philosophical systems arose in ancient India, each having a core text comprised of a collection of aphoristic verses, or sutras. The great plurality of doctrinal opinions in India is its strength, but also a philosophical problem in its own right. For it is obvious that, even as these systems emerged out of the same Vedic culture, they adopted contradictory positions on pretty well every key issue in philosophy, self, mind, and world, human aspiration, and human ability. In the coming episodes, we will meet two more traditions who offer a response to this problem of philosophical diversity, that is, to the availability of different and opposing standpoints or systems. One response is that of the skeptic, who claims that our inability to reach agreement on philosophical questions shows that no one answer is justified. The other response is that of the syncretist. Every position contains at least a grain of truth, so we should accept all philosophical positions, but only in a conditional manner. In India, the first approach was advanced by a school of Buddhism, and most notably by Nagarjuna, while the second was the preferred option of philosophers within the Jain tradition. We will see that both ways of rejecting dogmatism led to innovations in epistemology and logic, as our protagonists sought to avoid falling into self-refutation. Nagarjuna lived in the 2nd century AD, at a critical time for the development of both Buddhism and Jainism. It was in this period that thinkers of both traditions began writing in Sanskrit, having previously stuck with Pali, in the case of Buddhism, and Prakrit, in the case of the Jains. This allowed the Shramana movements to meet Vedic opponents on their own linguistic ground, while at the same time the Buddhists and Jains engaged in debate with one another. Often the story of Buddhist philosophy is described as if it emerged in an intellectual vacuum. But just as we've seen that the Brahminical schools refined their ideas in response to Buddhist critique, so we need to factor in the broader intellectual context if we want to understand Buddhist or Jain thought. With our survey of the systems behind us, we are in an especially good position to do this. We can pick up our story starting after the death of Ashoka, the emperor who worked so hard to promote Buddhist thought. He reigned in the 3rd century BC, approximately at the time that Buddhism underwent the first of its several divisions into rival intellectual schools called Vadas. They set forth systematic accounts of what they took to be Buddhist doctrine in seven canonical texts, each of which is called an Abhidharma. For a sense of how things developed, let's consider the central Buddhist tenet that there is no eternal, unchanging self or soul. Though we readily associate the phrase, no self, with Buddhism, mental reality is in some sense affirmed, which is why we saw Buddhist texts reacting critically to the frank materialism of the Charvaka forerunner, Payasi. The truth about the self is somewhere in between. We are neither identical to our bodies, as Charvaka would have it, nor are we souls that lack a connection to anything else, a view which is rather similar to the Jain theory of the self. Here, it seems that Buddha was at least as interested in positioning himself relative to other dissident groups in ancient India as he was in critiquing the Brahminical hegemony. 
To express his own view, the Buddha offered similes. A person is not like the thread running through a necklace of pearls, but like the flowing of a river or the flickering of a candle flame. In keeping with this last comparison, liberation from bodily existence is described as nirvana, a blowing out of the flame. Pressing the metaphor a little further, there is a certain sort of fuel which keeps the flame burning, and in the case of a human being, that fuel is craving, attachment, and false desire. The Buddha's ideas about the self were avidly explored in subsequent generations, as we can see from one of the earliest works of philosophical Buddhism. It's one we have mentioned before, a work written in Pali that describes an encounter between the Buddhist monk Nagasena and the king Menander. At one stage, Menander asks, He who is reborn, Nagasena, is he the same person or another? Nagasena replies, Neither the same nor another. Menander asks for an illustration, and Nagasena offers this, In the case of a pot of milk which turns to curds, then to butter, then to ghee, it would not be right to say that the ghee, butter, and curds were the same as the milk, but they have come from that. So neither would it be right to say that they are something else. The rival Vadas tried to work out the philosophical theory behind such metaphors. Back in episode 9, we already made brief mention of one of these groups, the Pugala Vada. They were distinguished by their willingness to admit that there is in some sense an enduring person or self that changes over time. Another group, the Sarvastivada, rejected this proposal but were themselves reluctant to admit that nothing is real apart from fleeting, momentary dharmas that make up an aggregate thing. In part to explain how there can be karmic effects from previous deeds, the Sarvastivadins propose that past and future things are real or existent. With the Abhidharma writings that put forth such interpretations, we see that the Buddhists adopted writing strategies different from those of the Brahminical schools. Buddhists did not write sutra texts, the compressed and difficult works that stood in obvious need of explanatory commentary. Somewhat confusingly, the early Buddhists actually do use the term sutra, or rather its Pali equivalent sutta, but with a quite different meaning. Here it refers to the recorded sayings of the Buddha himself, as set down in the so-called Nikayas. The various Buddhist schools tried to get under the surface of these explicit teachings in order to reveal the deep unity of the philosophical truth within. One standard exegetical move was to draw a distinction between those utterances of the Buddha which do express this deep truth, and those whose meaning is in need of drawing out in one way or another. This will be a running theme also in later Buddhism. Especially the Mahayana Buddhists deployed the notion of skillful means, which includes the notion that, as an ideal teacher, the Buddha often said things that are not strictly true in order to help his listeners move along the path to liberation. The Abhidharma teachings had varying afterlives. Where Sarvastivada Buddhism became dominant in northern India and Central Asia, Theravada Buddhism developed on the island of Ceylon, or Sri Lanka. The most remarkable ancient representative of Theravada lived in the 5th century AD, Buddha Gosa, author of a definitive, unified commentary on both the Nikayas and the canonical Abhidharma treatises. His work, the Visuddhimagga, meaning Path to Purity, continues to exercise great influence today in Sri Lanka, Burma, and Thailand, where the Theravada school is still alive and well. 
the Sarvastivada branch of Abhidharma, enjoyed even wider influence. Its key philosopher was Vasubandhu, who lived around 400 AD. He wrote a pivotal digest of Abhidharma theory, called the Abhidharma Kosha, and also an important analysis of the five factors which, according to the Buddha, constitute the psychophysical river that is a human being. Vasubandhu also features in the next chapter of this history the spread of Mahayana, or Great Vehicle Buddhism, so-called because its proponents wished to distinguish it from what they considered to be less complete or advanced accounts of the Buddha's teaching. Thus, they applied the condescending term Hinayana, or lesser vehicle, to rival groups, including the Theravada Buddhists. After starting out as a proponent of Sarvastivada, Vasubandhu was apparently persuaded by his brother, Asanga, to switch to the Mahayana school. Vasubandhu went on to write some of its fundamental texts, and even to write a self-commentary on his own Abhidharma Kosha, now from the Mahayana perspective. That was enough to annoy another Abhidharmika named Samgabhadra into writing a rival commentary where he defends Vasubandhu's old view against his new one. Among Vasubandhu's new Mahayana works, his 20 verses and his 30 verses are works of immense philosophical accomplishment. Mahayana Buddhism had in fact already emerged well before the time of Vasubandhu, sometime around the last century BC or 1st century AD. Its self-styled superiority to other Buddhist groups turned on its claim to be pursuing a higher ethical goal. Where others might be content to become enlightened and so achieve the status of an arhat, the Mahayanas emphasized the more exalted role of the bodhisattva. Indeed, their school was originally also called the bodhisattva yana. A bodhisattva is more than an arahat or even a Buddha because he goes beyond perfect liberation and wisdom by seeking to bring others to this same state. Thus, the Mahayanas put other regarding ethics at the center of their conception of Buddhism. They recognize that great sacrifice and patience will be required to reach the level of a bodhisattva. They speak of needing millions of world cycles in order to achieve this. Mahayana is also distinguished from other Buddhist groups in terms of the texts it recognizes as authoritative. They consider a number of new sutra texts to be genuine records of things said by the Buddha, despite having become available only centuries after his death. They had been hidden in the meantime, or posthumously divulged by the Buddha in dreams. More generally, Mahayana tends to think of Buddha less as an individual person and more as a functional role. They tell us that the Buddha teaches at all times and adopts many guises to do so, and assert that there have been more than one Buddha, indeed as many as the grains of sand in the Ganges. So far, Buddhist history has been less a single flowing river than a set of branching tributaries. This continues with Mahayana Buddhism, which itself subdivided into two main subschools. One is Madhyamaka, the philosophy of the middle way, founded by the aforementioned Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna's philosophy was destined to go on to great things in Tibet, China, and Japan, and is in fact the ultimate source of Zen Buddhism. It can be tempting to think of Buddhism as having a first Indian phase and a later phase, where it gradually disappeared from India, even as Buddhist ideas were disseminated through the rest of Asia, but actually the waters are a bit muddier than that. You've already seen that Sri Lanka was the home of Theravada Buddhism from early on, and some of our earliest sources for the various strands of Buddhism, including Madhyamaka, are in Chinese. 
we have valuable information about Indian Buddhism from two Chinese travelers, Fa Hsien in the 5th century and Haswan Sang in the 7th century, and also cases where Buddhist works were written in Chinese and translated into Sanskrit. Nagarjuna lived around 150 to 200 AD, making him a contemporary of Gautama, the author or compiler of the Nyaya Sutra. Nagarjuna's most famous works are The Verses on the Middle Way and The Refutation of My Opponents, in which he tries to undermine the Nyaya theory of knowledge and answers Nyaya criticisms of his own work. His central thesis, though as we'll see calling it a thesis is to some extent problematic, is that all human conceptual schemes and all philosophical systems are empty or null. His teaching is therefore also known as the philosophy of emptiness. He is a severe critic of the pramana method for conducting rational inquiry and instead urges the use of reason to expose inconsistencies within the fabric of one's own conceptions, to say nothing of the conceptions of rival philosophers. This all sounds pretty radical, so why does Nagarjuna call his brand of Buddhism Madhyamaka, or middle way? Because it neither embraces the permanence of things, nor does it deny that anything is real. Much as Nagasena told King Menander that things are neither the same nor different over time, so Nagarjuna says that things are not simply independently existent, nor are they non-existent, rather they are real insofar as they depend on other things. To be is to be relative. Don't worry if this sounds mysterious, because we're going to get into it more deeply in the next few episodes, after which it will probably still sound pretty mysterious, but a Buddhist would advise you not to let that worry you either. The other school of Mahayana is Yogacara, which was first set out by the two brothers Asanga and Vasubandhu. It is not so much opposed to Madhyamaka as complementary to it, focusing especially on psychological and spiritual issues. Obviously, it is not to be confused with the yoga branch of Brahminical thought, though Yogacara is in fact so named because it places emphasis on spiritual practices, or yoga, like meditation. Around 500 AD, so about a century after Vasubandhu, Yogacara found its most brilliant exponent in the person of Dignaga. We'll be looking at his ideas in logic and epistemology, as well as the criticism and revision of these ideas at the hands of Dharmakirti, who wrote about one century further on, at about 600 AD. That's about as far as we'll be going in this series of podcasts, but it should be mentioned that these figures set the agenda for subsequent Buddhist philosophy. Later figures tend to write either commentaries on Dharmakirti, or manuals presenting the main elements of his thought in a more manageable form. This fairly bewildering multiplication of schools and textual traditions may recall the scholasticism of later Islamic, or Latin medieval, thought. All the more so given that the social and institutional context for all these developments was not entirely dissimilar. Just as the Latin Christian church and secular princes of Europe facilitated the rise of the universities, and the madrasa system was put in place by Muslim rulers and their viziers, so Buddhism received intermittent, but often substantial, support from various Indian rulers. Generous laypersons, too, were willing to do more than just put food in the begging bowls of monks. The lavish gifts of both groups made it possible to build spectacular stupas, or Buddhist shrines, to carve out and decorate whole complexes of caves for monastic life and study, and to found such establishments as the great center of learning at Naranda, 
a huge monastery that is frequently described as playing the role of a university. Before we took you along the forking paths of the history of ancient Buddhism, you might have wondered how Buddhist scholars could have spent decades studying at such a place, given the relative simplicity of the Buddha's original teaching. But when you consider the massive writings produced by all these different groups, and the fact that a competent Buddhist philosopher would furthermore need detailed understanding of the Brahminical schools, for the sake of refuting them, you begin to believe that one or two reincarnations might be needed to explain a truly accomplished thinker like Vasubandhu or Dharmakirti. Happily, things are a bit more straightforward with the Jains. As we mentioned in episode 15, Jainism too split into two branches, the Shvetambara and Digambara, or white-clad and sky-clad. But fortunately, we can ignore this, because the philosophers we'll be discussing would be read and accepted by both sides. The three founding figures of Jaina philosophy are Kundakunda, Umasvati, and Siddhasena Divakara. They may have lived in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries respectively, but their dates are not known with much accuracy. No less than the Buddhists, the Jains were deeply knowledgeable about other systems of Indian philosophy. Their descriptions of these other systems tend to be faithful, which can make them a useful source for otherwise lost ideas. We wouldn't have been able to say nearly so much about Charvaka without the help of the later Jain philosopher Prabhachandra. They are also sophisticated doxographers. The 8th century Haribhadra Suri composed a very useful book called Compendium of the Six Systems. This does not refer to the six Brahminical schools we considered, but rather Buddhism and Jainism, plus four Hindu systems. The only thing Haribhadra really regards as beyond the pale is Charvaka naturalism. There is a good reason for the Jains' interest in the ideas of other intellectual traditions, and in this case it was not just a matter of knowing one's enemy. Actually, Jains don't really have enemies. Their philosophy is justly celebrated for its inclusivism, codified in a theory of the non-one-sidedness of reality, and in the idea that truth is always approached from a specific point of view. The pluralism of Jain metaphysics is summed up by Kunda Kunda in the following rather dense remark, All substances are non-different from the substantial viewpoint, but again they are different from the modificational viewpoint because of the individual modification pervading it for the time being. According to some modification or other, it is stated that a substance exists, does not exist, is indescribable, is both, or otherwise. We will explain the various elements in this statement in later episodes, in particular the idea that there are different metaphysical standpoints. Whereas Kunda Kunda wrote exclusively in Prakrit, Umasvati was the first Jain philosopher to compose philosophical works in Sanskrit. He even calls his great treatise a sutra, the sutra on what there is. Almost every Jain philosopher of any significance would, in the course of the subsequent centuries, write a commentary on this book, using the opportunity to defend their own views and attack those of their foes. So maybe Jains do have enemies after all? Certainly they were willing to defend their own perspectivalism against its critics. We should bear this in mind as we consider the relation of Jain epistemology to the other teachings of their tradition. It's often assumed that this epistemology is a kind of intellectual version of ahimsa. Just as the Jain observes strict nonviolence in practical matters, so in theoretical matters, the Jain embraces principles of tolerance and harmony. While this interpretation may not be entirely wrong-headed, it seems at least too simple, 
for the Jains were just as ready as the Brahminical thinkers and the Buddhists to engage in that quintessential ancient Indian philosophical practice, debate. But there's no debating that you should join us again as we begin to look at Nagarjuna, a thinker whose works are absolutely full of insight and dense argumentation, which is pretty ironic given that his signature doctrine is that everything is empty. That's next time here on the History of Philosophy in India. Thank you.